Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is January 29, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a privilege to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading, which takes us from 27D to 45C of Plato's Philobus. And these are posted on the share drive linked to the event notice on beatup.com. We can focus on any of these or the other themes. And for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today is the second of three sessions on the Philobus. We'll cover the part of the dialogue in which Socrates and Protarchus explore the means of determining the correct ratio of knowledge and pleasure in the good life, which they determine contains a mixture of both. One of their goals is to gauge whether either knowledge or pleasure on their own would win second prize for the good life. However, the problem with one of these, pleasure, is that it is not subject to inherent limits, and so, Socrates says, it is necessary to establish a harmony of the unlimited with the limits in which we exist. As a general category, pleasure might be one thing, but the one category contains no limit to different kinds of pleasures, which are unequal in their causes and effects. There are particular pleasures that turn out over time to be greater or less than others, but on its own, a single pleasure is undefined in its potential, having, as Socrates says at 31a, no beginning, middle, or end. In today's reading, Socrates presents by analogy the different kinds of pleasures as images that we paint in our minds. Each image is static, based on a perception at a moment in time, but the challenge to the soul is to put the image into motion and measure the probabilities of its causes and effects over time. One of the selections I picked from today's reading speaks to our assessment of pleasure as an object of judgment over time and highlights that the soul can find pleasure in things that in time neither are, nor ever were, nor ever will be. We'll see in today's reading continued discussion of the question whether man is the measure of things, of both unlimited things like pleasure and limited things like time in our state of becoming, with the challenge being to harmonize the limited and the unlimited. Socrates stresses reason as the source or cause of things, but none of us is capable of perfect reasoning. As a contender for second prize in the good life, reason, Socrates says, is akin to cause, and everything comes to be from a cause. Today's reading ends with Socrates placing reason in the middle of limits, where the unlimited meets the limited at one fixed point that is not subject to continual flux. To find the reason and cause of a thing, we have to begin with what we assume to be the thing's general form and continue to divide it into its many unities until we find the common element that relates to all limits of the thing. Otherwise, we risk, as Socrates says, making a unity of things most opposed. Perhaps it is like finding all the fractions that combine to a whole quantity and, as Steve observed in our last session, seeking the ontology of the thing among its many parts. Searching for the one among the many is a process that involves numbering calculation, which are essential to the philosopher. Continuing division in the search for unity also requires perception and preservation of perception, which Socrates calls memory, but it also requires recollection. 
So the difference between memory and recollection is that the former arises when the soul and the body experience a thing at the same time, but the latter arises when the soul later recalls something that it experienced with the body at an earlier time. It is in the process of recollection, Socrates says, that desire for an opposite state of being arises. In the Mino, Socrates stated that all knowledge is recollection, and the point is reinforced in the Philippus as Socrates and Protarchus discuss the nature of the soul. If the human soul contains the capacity of calculation and recollection, are we unique among everything else in the universe, and the universe itself, in that regard? Socrates asserts that the universe itself has a soul because, he says, there could be no wisdom and reason without a soul, and reason is the cause of everything. So I thought we could start today with this point, beginning at 28D, which I'll put on the screen. This is a short part to start off with. Socrates and Protarchus are speaking here. Uh, Socrates says, well said. Let us proceed by taking up this question. Protarchus says, what question? And I'll stop there. I mentioned this last time. This seems to happen all through this dialogue where Socrates says something as if he's referring to something that they had previously discussed, but in fact, they haven't discussed it. So he says, we'll take up this question. Well, what question? He hasn't mentioned which one. So maybe this is a play on memory. So anyway, Protarchus says, what question? Socrates says, whether we hold the view that the universe and this whole world order are ruled by unreason and irregularity, as chance would have it, or whether they are not, rather, as our forebears taught us, governed by reason and by the order of a wonderful intelligence. Protarchus answers, how can you even think of a comparison here, Socrates? What you suggest now is downright impious, I would say. The only account that can do justice to the wonderful spectacle presented by the cosmic order of sun, moon, and stars, and the revolution of the whole heaven, is that reason arranges it all, and I, for my part, would never waver in saying or believing it. Socrates says, is this what you want us to do? That we should not only conform to the view of earlier thinkers who profess this as the truth, repeating without any risk what others have said, but that we should share their risk and blame if some formidable opponent denies it and argues that disorder rules. So I just thought I would start with that little bit, introducing this idea that the universe has a soul. But here is an interesting thing where Protarchus is going kind of immediately to accept the ancient wisdom that says that the universe does have a soul. And Protarchus says, I'm not even going to question that. I'm going to just accept that as a given. And Socrates says, well, maybe we should question, although Socrates winds up concluding that the universe does have a soul. But here I think he's offering a reason to say that we should exercise reason. So he's he's inviting Protarchus to exercise some reason in this. So I thought I would start with that. And I don't know if there's any reactions to this part, uh, particularly the, the idea of the world order and things being arranged according to reason. Steve, your thoughts. Hello, thanks as usual for your work and your kindness in, in putting this together for all of us. Welcome. This struck me right off the bat. It seems like they're going away from reason right away, right off the bat. The, the argument that's put forth is really like the creationist argument that they want to uh, put into schools to counter evolution, where it's not uh, when they're defining it as reason, but it is, you know, the theory of evolution is showing that it is the irregularities. It isn't the, the wisdom of the ancients. So 
even though, like you say, you know, in the beginning, Socrates is questioning this, he eventually goes along with it. And his whole argument for showing that reason is the world's soul, and again, this is, you know, I understand they're limited by their technology, that their idea of the world and universe was just Earth and that Earth was the center of it. But regardless of that, looking at the um, effectiveness for what Socrates is saying today, his arguments just fall apart right at the beginning here. They're not even looking into the possibility that ends up being what we hold as the most correct view today, that randomness is an important effect on, in what the, the universe is today or what the, uh, the working order of the universe is. And they're denying it right off the bat. So uh, starts off with uh, bad taste in the mouth, so to speak, as far as him, um, you know, lining up reason as his, uh, you know, ultimate here. Thank mm -hmm. you. Fair point. And, and I think though Socrates is inviting dispute in that last line, he says that, do we just risk what the ancients say, or do we come to our own reasoning about this? So I don't think he's meaning to prejudge it at this point, but you're right that he hasn't dealt with the idea of randomness. You know, I wonder whether our science now points to randomness, or whether our science is actually pointing to some bigger order, you know, the search for the theory of everything, for example, would be a search, a current search that's on, ongoing, which seeks to establish a reason for everything and a basis for everything. So I don't know if it's universally accepted now that randomness is the basis of things, but uh, certainly it's a, it's a fair point that we shouldn't dismiss it. And hopefully we'll see the reasons that they bring to bear to support the idea that there is a reason for everything. So... So thanks for raising that, and we'll see where that one goes. We'll go to Jerry and then to Darren. Yeah, I don't think uh, Socrates is uh, is accepting that proposition that the world, that the universe is ordered without scrutiny. It's rather the opposite, right? Protarchus is accepting it, and Socrates is saying, "Well, let's examine that argument. Let's not just accept that argument." But I'm just kind of wondering where the concept of world soul comes from. You know, in the ancient world. And I'm not positive about this. I, I suspect that the argument is something like this, that, you know, life has to have a cause. There's got to be a cause for everything. What's the cause of everything, including life? Well, the universe, the world causes everything. Without a world or a universe, you know, there'd be no life. So then if the universe causes life, the universe must be alive. It must have a soul. So that's what I, where I think that they're coming from with that. There's got to be something from whence life originates, right? So the world must be alive. That's why we're alive. Something like that. And, and thanks for bringing that perspective. It's interesting to think to, you know, what the prevailing thought was at the time. But I think certainly here, Socrates is saying that everything comes to be from a source. He, he says that, or it comes to be from a cause, and a cause is a source. Um, and he says that a number of times throughout different dialogues. In fact, on the cover page of today's notes, I attended a session on the uh, Phaedrus last week, and that caused me to reread a few sections of the Phaedrus, and Phaedrus has some wonderful stuff on the soul. I'll just maybe read this short bit here at, from 245C to E, where in the Phaedrus, Socrates is saying that every soul is immortal, that is because whatever is always in, more, in motion is immortal. 
while what moves and is moved by something else stops living when it stops moving. So it is only what moves itself that never desists from motion since it does not leave off being itself. In fact, this self-mover is also the source and spring of motion in everything else that moves, and a source has no beginning. And that maybe, Jerry, talks a little bit to what you just said in terms of where is the beginning of everything, you know, and if there's a universe, and I've asked this question a number of times before, is there a universe or a multiverse? Certainly both theories exist now, but I would keep saying if there is a multiverse, what is it a multitude of? A multiverse would require a source, as I think a universe would, so it would be an interesting question to explore and the differing uh, understanding of the order of the universe back then versus now so right, right. i mean whatever whatever that thing is that source is we must bear some connection to it right right so thank you for that we'll go to darren uh, so i really like this idea that you brought up that socrates is here is inviting protarchus to exercises reason i didn't really make that connection before but i really like seeing this little part that way i like this section because um i, I feel like it also repeats something from last week's meetup the reading then so i'll just read this line again and just comment on it he says is this what you want us to do that we should not only conform to the view of earlier thinkers who profess this as a truth repeating without any risk what others have said but that we should share their risk and blame and in the previous meetup, I remember he talked about these arguments about oneness and um, how people were using them as a way to keep themselves, I think the wording there was to keep themselves safe and sound through this absurdity or through some absurdity and how like the arguments about oneness had become popular and almost mundane and they were bringing discussion and argument to an end. It was like a way for people to, as he says, keep themselves safe and sound the implication seems to be to keep themselves safe and sound from thinking. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really like this observation you made. And I think this idea of philosophy as something that has to be active in a process. I mean, we see throughout the dialogues, I mean, the very dialogue form itself suggests this, right? Philosophy shouldn't be presented or taught as a kind of doctrine that you just memorize and you just follow. <laughs> Like that would be sort of almost like anti-philosophy, although even I think today, that's sometimes the way it is presented or taught, at least when people have maybe a theory they prefer and then they teach it as philosophy or the philosophy. And here, like here's a warning against it again. And so the a last thought on this is that given that this dialogue is about pleasure, I wonder if there's sort of a meta commentary on that. I wonder if there's anything in this dialogue. I haven't read to the end yet. I've only read up to the reading this week. But I wonder if there's anything in this dialogue that's ultimately going to be about a kind of special pleasure <laughs> that comes from doing philosophy or at least pursuing the truth, but which is fairly unique in a way so that we have to be able to make distinctions about pleasure. And a lot of this like metaphysical work we're doing now, I feel like it might be, and even this week, right? We see him making distinctions between different kinds of pleasures, maybe is laying the groundwork in order to be able to talk about a specific kind of pleasure that is valuable. But I don't know. I'm just guessing right now because philosophy isn't necessarily pleasurable. I mean, a lot of people don't find pleasure in it maybe. So like here, he's talking about the risk and the blame that we're make ourselves vulnerable to when we actually present our own arguments and present our own thinking. But this is a kind of courage that's necessary in order to, I think we see this in many dialogues, 
not the least the uh, Lakey is about courage itself. Doing philosophy requires a kind of courage and being brave enough to possibly make mistakes and, you know, even embarrass ourselves. <laughs> uh, Socrates talks about him being, you know, embarrassing himself um, and saying wrong things all the time and not being afraid to make mistakes. So, yeah, there's a lot about doing philosophy that's often not pleasurable. So maybe like when we get to the end, maybe there's going to be something about intellectual pleasure finally. But I don't know. That's just mm -hmm. a guess from <laughs> um, what I've been like little hints of things I've seen so far. I think it's a, a good guess. Um, when they talk about um, anticipatory pleasures, which belong to the soul. So the soul can anticipate things and derive pleasure from the anticipation that may read into the final conclusion of the dialogue in two weeks when we finish the last section. And you made good points about we go to the idea of unity maybe too quickly because we find security or refuge in that idea rather than having to pick things apart and do as Socrates is saying that we should do is bring all of the fractions of a thing together to make sure that it all adds up before we reach the conclusion that there is a unity. So in the first part, Protarchus and Philobus said that all pleasure is the same, it's a unity. And then Socrates made the point that there's many different types of pleasures, and they don't all add up to one thing which is uniformly good. So we always have to do this uh, dividing things down and not rushing to the unity of a thing before we've fully analyzed it and, and assessed how all of the fractions of the thing fit together. And I think you, you read actually the bit um, two weeks ago of the first part of the dialogue in which Socrates says that dialogue is necessary for dialectic and going back and forth to test for the first limits of it or for the first principles of a thing. Whereas the alternative in that little bit was uh, what he called heuristic discourse, which is just kind of repetition of things that have already been said. So I think that's coming up here as well. So thanks for that. And we'll go to JK. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Thank you, James. Uh, this um, this first sentence here, uh, this, uh, where he, Socrates says that the, um, or actually in the second sentence, do we understand the universe as a whole order, as a whole world order ruled by unreason and irregularity as chance? He's uh, kind of uh, opposing uh, this to his uh, notion that the uh, the whole universe, the whole world order, should be one understood by reason. Is the kind of reason that he's talking about, it's human reason, right? So he's assuming that the human reason can understand the entire order of the universe and understand that it is an order, an intelligible order, that we can propose it to be, and that would be the soul. And so the question is, is that re reasonable to think that way, that our reason, human reason can encompass the entire wholeness of the world, of the, of the universe, or maybe many universes, and that would be the soul, as opposed to, uh, because he, he, he would be saying that somehow our reason, if we can do that, wouldn't that be an abstraction from the whole? An abstraction would be like the way of, uh, you know, you can measure it, you can calculate and maybe uh, build an algorithm in a computer and then come up with the whole, the essence of the soul, right? Which we are coming maybe close to doing that if you believe in computer programming. It's an interesting thought as we have powerful technology like GPT-3 now that is simulating human discussion, human speech. And 
therefore trying to simulate human thought. I think Socrates goes on to say that reason isn't just a human faculty, it's also a faculty of the universe itself. We'll see that, I think, in the, the next reading that I'll present. It's, it's a continuation of this reading. I like how you put, though, that reason is an abstraction of the whole and maybe is a basis for calculation. There's an interesting part, actually, at near the end of today's reading. This is at 42, 43a, somewhere around there. Yeah, 43a. Socrates says, uh, I guess what you meant to say is that we necessarily are always experiencing one or the other, as the wise men say, for everything is in an eternal flux upward and downward. And then he goes on to dispute that idea of everything being in an eternal flux. There he's saying, I think that randomness does not rule. And what he's saying in that particular section, I think, is that reason finds its place exactly in the middle of everything. And from the middle, you can then measure to the two extremes. Everything comes to be in opposites, right? So you can't make the measure to either of the extremes from any point within either of the extremes. You have to make the measurement from a neutral point, which would be in the middle. So I think he's coming to the idea here that reason sits in the middle. And that particularly struck me in that discussion, starting at 43a, when he talks about those who believe the universe to be in flux, and then he goes on to dispute that idea. And right. he, he brings reason into play as that which prevents everything from being in a flux. Right. Wouldn't that be in disagreement with uh, Gudo's uh, incompleteness theorem? That you could build a system that is complete, you know, but it's not consistent, or consistent, but it's not complete. That's an interesting point, because I, Steve mentioned Gödel's incompleteness theorem last time, and I think the comment that was made, and I was just re-listening to that episode this morning, it was such a great discussion, I think the comment that was made is that everything needs to start from an assumption. And I think that's kind of what Socrates is saying in here too. So the incompleteness theorem is that you can't test every single theory. There's not a, an empirical basis to support every theory that you always have to make an assumption and then work your way from the assumptions to the unities. And I think that's that's really effectively what Socrates is saying here. So it's an interesting idea to bring that up. But I think that's the the question of, then exercising reason to bring everything together, bring all of the unities together, and then trace all of the unities to the source of things, keeping reason in the middle of it all So uh, as, as the basis for measurement. So an interesting idea with the incompleteness theorem, but uh, maybe that's the idea that there can never be a completely defined list of all theorems. There's always another theorem, and I think right. that's that's good for us. Right, right. That's just like the philosophical paradox of uh, different people grabbing different parts of the elephant, right? But uh, how do you be able to understand the, the entire elephant? So, you know, how do we avoid just understanding one aspect of the whole, right? right? And, and assuming that you, you understand the, the entirety of the whole. Good point. And, and, you know, in the first part of the philobus that we read two weeks ago, Socrates says that if we leap to assuming that we know the whole thing, then we risk making an argument that opposites are alike because we need to define the two limits that define the beginning and the end of the thing first before we can start to argue about the nature of the thing. I think that's the that's the key of that. I have this other part. So just reading on from the, the part that we were reading from, this is a longer part from 29C to 30C. And this gets more deeply into the argument that the universe does have a soul and reason. 
I thought we could read this if uh, I don't know if anybody would like to read Socrates and Protarchus. I could do Protarchus. That should be easy enough. All right. Thank you, Steve. All right. Well, I will read Socrates in that case. So this is starting at 29C. Socrates says, but what about this? Is the fire in the universe generated, nourished, and ruled by the fire that belongs to us? Or is it not quite the reverse, that your heat and mine, and that in every animal, owe all this to the cosmic fire? It is not even worth answering that question. Right. And I guess you will give the same answer about the earth here in the animals when it is compared to the earth in the universe. And likewise about the other elements I mentioned a little earlier. Is that your answer? Who could answer differently without seeming insane? No one at all. But now see what follows. To the combination of all these elements taken as a unit, we give the name body, don't we? Certainly. Now, realize that the same holds in the case of what we call the ordered universe. It will turn out to be a body in the same sense, since it is composed of the same elements. What you say is undeniable. Does the body of the universe as a whole provide for the sustenance of what is body in our sphere? Or is it the reverse, and the universe possesses and derives all the goods enumerated from ours? That too is a question not worth asking, Socrates. But what about the following? Is this also a question not worth asking? Tell me what the question is. Of the body that belongs to us, will we not say that it has a soul? Quite obviously, that is what we will say. But where does it come from, unless the body of the universe, which has the same properties as ours, but more beautiful in all respects, happens to possess a soul? Clearly from nowhere else. We surely cannot maintain this assumption with respect to our four classes, being limit, unlimited, their mixture, and their cause, which is present in everything. That this cause is recognized as all-encompassing wisdom, since among us it imports the soul and provides training for the body and medicine for its ailments, and in other cases order and restitution, but it should fail to be responsible for the same things on a large scale in the whole universe, things that are, in addition, beautiful and pure, for the contrivance of which has so fair and wonderful a nature. That would make no sense at all. But if that is inconceivable, we had better <clears throat> pursue the alternative account and affirm, as we have said often, that there is plenty of the unlimited in the universe as well as sufficient limit, and that there is above them a certain cause of no small significance that orders and coordinates the years, seasons, and months, and which has every right to the title of wisdom and reason. The greatest, right? But there could be no wisdom and reason without a soul. Thank you, Steve, for, for reading that with me. So there's a lot said in this part about the nature of the universe and the statement that the universe has a soul and reason. What do we think about those arguments? I think the way I see it is Socrates is saying that since we have souls and we are part of the universe, then the universe has to have at least as much as we do. Are we exclusive uh, owners of souls when the universe itself doesn't have a soul? How could it be that we exist as part of the universe, but the universe itself doesn't have a soul? I think that's that's how I'm understanding his argument. So we'll take Steve and then Fernando. I think, again, he's using the universe as the measure of 
what a, of a man is, is that they cannot conceive, they're extrapolating that just because we, you know, in their view, have a soul, that the universe, you know, that we couldn't come from something without a soul. So they really, it doesn't use any uh, reasoning to prove this. Everything they're saying is accepted without question. I can't pronounce it. Protaris? Protaris? Oh, yeah, he, uh, he doesn't argue. Yeah, he just agrees with them. So how yeah. how could this be a uh, a reasoned uh, with if you're trying to make a reasoned scientific exploration, you have to examine the alternatives. And even though in the beginning section it sounds like Socrates is opening up to challenge the you know the wisdom of the ancients. And all throughout this argument, they're just accepting all those as, as fact. This is what we believe, so this is what the facts are. So they're not really making any uh, good attempt to uh, reason this out, in, in my view. Well, thanks. And, and certainly, um, Protarchus does, again, in this section, accept things rather quickly without exercising reason. And I think Socrates is, again, trying to demonstrate that trait in Protarchus that he's he's more comfortable resorting to um, accepted or, or long thought ideas rather than exercising his own reason. And certainly at the beginning of that reading, Protarchus says it's not even worth answering that question. And then in his next answer, he says, "Who could answer differently without seeming insane?" And you know, he's he's full of conclusions, but not as full of reasons. So. But, you know, in terms of reasoning here, I, I think Socrates is trying to present a few reasons and, you know, but maybe they don't explore the alternative here yet, uh, but there are a few reasons. He starts by saying, you know, is the fire in the universe generated, nourished and ruled by the fire that belongs to us? Or does it, or is it not quite the reverse that your heat and mine and that in every animal, owe all of this to the cosmic fire. In other words, where do we get the the heat and the energy in our bodies? We get it from the universe. The universe doesn't get its heat from us, and so I think that's to say that we are part of the universe. We are a a creation within the entire fabric of the universe, but we're not separate from the universe. And the question um, that Socrates raises, which maybe we can try to answer here, is uh, this one here that I've underlined. But where does it come from? He's talking about the soul, but where does it come from unless the body of the universe, which has the same properties as ours, but more beautiful in all respects, happens to possess a soul? So if we have a soul, where do we get it from? From a source other than the universe. So again, this question of source and cause, is there any source of something that is outside of the universe, like the soul? So that's the question. So thanks for raising that. And, and let's explore that, you know, let's maybe look for some more support either for this argument or against this argument and see what we can find. We'll go to Fernando and then Darren. Uh, yeah, those, those, those portions that, that Steve mentioned also are kind of striking because um, 
I think it was part of like the Orphic tradition and equally just kind of part of the literature that a lot of the literature did support kind of more or less kind of chaos. And even in the anthropomorphized gods, uh, they weren't necessarily ruled by, by reason, right? Like there, there's Zeus and there's Aphrodite and they're constantly in strife with each other. And there's not necessarily uh, an applied intelligence, like a cosmic order that gets drawn out. So it is kind of surprising into what he could be alluding to. Uh, it also just jumps out this, you know, as we all know, being a late dialogue, right? That throughout Socrates does often ascribe that, that you know, that he knows human reason, that he doesn't know divine reason. And the part that the JK had mentioned also could kind of jumps out. I mean, aside from the from the obvious kind of like logic issue with the part the whole, right? Uh, aside, aside from that, the points that JK had mentioned that, you know, that, that there is plenty of limited in the universe as well, sufficient limit. Uh, you know, the coordination of the year, seasons, and months. But that appearance, right, like JK pointed out, it only looks coordinated from the human point of view, right? And there's no necessarily coordinating agent that's going to apply that as a whole, right, like a, a grand orchestrator, but that it may look like in from our perspective that way, but there's not necessarily any sort of guarantee of there being an all right perspective, right? That catches everything in, in, at the at the singular uh, space-time continuum at that precise moment. Interesting ideas that you raise there and certainly the concept of the gods maybe as it existed or as many at the time maybe accepted the concept of the gods as being this rather chaotic group of of beings who um, exercised authority, some according to whim, and I, I guess that maybe is a sign that of the view that maybe there wasn't a reason. But the idea of a grand orchestrator, I guess, is maybe what we really need to dig into here. Is uh, is the universe itself the grand orchestrator? And if it is, then it's doing so with some form of reason. And you know, how does that? come to be? And how does the human soul come to be if the universe doesn't also have a soul? How does the human soul get separated from the universe as something separate and apart from the universe itself? So interesting use of the of the gods and chaos, I think, in that example. And, and maybe that's something that we need to find some contrast to. So thanks. And we'll go to Jaren and then, then JK. So I uh, wanted to respond to Steve originally, actually, but uh, Fernando mentioned some interesting things. So I'll try to quickly respond to those first. Fernando asked like what he might be alluding to regarding this God, because there were many gods in the Greek pantheon. And so I think Plato, through the mouthpiece of Socrates, might actually be doing something like interesting um, and innovative theologically, at least here which is like precisely here to suggest maybe there is this one divine governing presence that created the universe. And so it's, 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 it's a very like Christian idea of God that you'll find like in Genesis, but I mean, it, it, it doesn't make, you know, him Christian, obviously, but it is, I, I think, that, I think he might be doing something like historically innovative here. And like, we also see, of course, in other dialogues that, you know, we find Plato, again, through the mouth of Socrates, like questioning the gods and talking about gods of different cultures and how do you know which god is right. And also we saw in the Cratylus, the recent reading uh, we did last fall, and then and it comes up again in this dialogue, I believe, where like Socrates is strangely afraid of like 
pronouncing the names of the gods. I still don't get that. Like, why is he afraid of doing that? Like, it seems to me if there are gods, like that would be the least of our worries. Like what name we give them. It seems like there should be so many, we we would have to be worried or be uh, worried about so many other more important things than just the names. But like, that's the thing he seems most worried about. And I wonder if it's related to this point where like, I feel like Plato maybe personally feels that if there is a God, like it's always an if in these dialogues, then it's like this, like one governing divine presence rather than all these particular gods that, you know, all the silly Greek people around him are believing. I don't know. I feel like that might be his attitude. So the, another thing that um, Fernando mentioned was that um, regarding how the order in the universe might just be order, like from our perspective um, or something like that. And I, I guess like Steve was also like, you know, raising questions about this argument. Um, I'm not saying it's like logically airtight, but I, I think I personally find like there is some appeal to it and and maybe not accidentally. I think a lot of like theologians and Christian theologians have actually used this kind of argument, like where like he talks about in this section that we read about how there are like little causes. He talks about medicine and all these things that help our lives go well. So things we figured out about the world, like the the world seems to have some kind of reason in it because we're able to figure it out. But I think the the surprise that or the sense of mystery that he's trying to evoke is that, like, how is this possible? <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe it's not a big question to um, to some people, but like, that we can make sense of the world through our reason in this way. That there could be this kind of match. And I think a a, a very kind of um, traditional Christian argument is that it's because there's reason in the world. That's why our reason can make sense of the world, is because the world itself is rational and contains reason and so that when we understand the world like he talks about in this passage he talks about all the little causes i remember like he he talks about medicine and other things right when we understand the world it's because in a way we're like rethinking the world so this idea of recollection comes up again because the world has already reason in it and is like made by reason so when we understand it we figure little things out like like things that help our lives go well we're like recollecting the reason that's already present in this universe that actually makes the universe consist of this reason. Steve mentioned that Protarchus was following Socrates along and isn't really actually exercising reason. So this seems to push back against the point that James made earlier that like Socrates is inviting us to use our reason here because initially Protarchus was just happy to imitate a theory that people used to make. But I'll just say that it's true that Protarchus isn't completely left to his own devices. So it's just not him just sitting around left on his own and to reason. So Socrates is leading him on a lot. I do think Protarchus is given a space to exercise his own reason, though. And I, I raise this because I think in general, it is an important part of the sort of epistemic and philosophical ethics, like the ethics of doing philosophy. So I, I don't want to deny Protarchus any part uh, or role in this. There are some times where he is confused and will ask for clarification. And then he will push back against Socrates about pleasure later. So he he seems to be also a Philippus's view, or at least he's maybe may influenced by it, that pleasure is just one thing. So we'll see him later pushing back later when they ask whether pleasure can be about anything, like judgment or about things. And Philippus would be like, no, but how can, you know, pleasure is just a pleasure. How can a pleasure be about anything? So he does push back a little bit. And of course, even his um, ascents, right? When he says, well, of course, like, oh, this is such a stupid question. Like who could possibly answer <laughs> otherwise? That's still a space for him to exercise his own reason because a strong ascent requires exercise of his own mind. It's still not like a doctrine sort of presented on high. And I think in the fact that many of these, I don't know about the ending of this dialogue because I haven't gotten there yet, but like, 
almost all the dialogues end in aporia, end in aporia. So they they end they end inconclusively. So even if Socrates is leading them on at the moment, he and Plato will leave us in a lurch at the end, all, almost all the time. <laughs> so that's it's like uh you know he's he's gonna lead us on, but ultimately he does sort of leave the space open at the end. He's not gonna tell us what you know French the definition of friendship is or what the definition of courage is or any or any in any of the other dialogue you know any of those whatever the dialogue is about so yeah i just want to say that i think protarchus is left some space but it is a method right it's not like he's completely left on his own you know to reason in his own it is a guided process socrates says he's a midwife of <laughs> in in theatetus about what what is within other people already and yeah so he's just there to stir it up i guess you raised a number of interesting points there the when you said that Maybe um, Plato's doing something historically innovative here. And maybe that is the case in the sense that he doesn't want to name individual gods when he thinks that there is only one god. Uh, but he doesn't he never ascribes any sort of personality to God. And and I think maybe a lot of modern re religions do that. They ascribe a personality to God. And, you know, God wishes to smite certain people and God wishes to favor other people. And it's as if uh, God is presiding over us and we are, we are the children that need guidance. But I'm not sure that Plato is saying that. I kind of get the sense here that he's saying universe is the God. So if we just rename God universe, maybe that's what he's saying because the universe has a soul is what he's saying. I just highlighted, I had this one line on the screen as well from 30D, Socrates says, reason belongs to that kind, which is the cause of everything. And so if we perceive of God as the cause of everything, then universe is the cause of everything, then universe equals God. So I just present that as one thought uh, there. And the other thing that you said was really interesting, made me, th me think, was that you asked, can we reason because the universe itself contains reason? And it maybe brings me back to what Steve said at the outset about randomness. If the universe were random, the exercise of reason, to the extent that would even be possible on our behalf, would have to end at some point. Reason would have to end at some point and randomness would have to take over from there. And so I don't know what the limit of reason would be in that kind of random setting if everything was ultimately random. So another, that was a really interesting way that you put it that made me think about reason and whether it could logically have any limits uh, or whether, as Socrates seems to be implying at around 43a, whether reason is in the middle of everything. So interesting, interesting thoughts there. So thanks, and we'll go to JK. So just to carry on your thought there that it's, um... The universe is reason, and reason is God, and God is um, is in charge of everything, right? It's uh, that means that it's um, we're living in a deterministic universe, right? In which, as Einstein said, God does not play dice. There's no chance. There's no randomness, and we have no free will. And if we have no free will, okay, what does that mean? That we cannot even decide, make our own decisions about whether to reason or not to reason or right so it's leaving out maybe it's leaving out too many other aspects other possibilities for what the universe the soul is that uh, maybe it's not as predictable as we can presume it to be by virtue of reason because it seems to imply that by, by virtue of reason uh, 
we can have a, a systematic understanding of, uh, of the universe and the soul. And therefore, um, everything can be predicted, right? Seems, seems like a more, a more sophisticated notion of the soul would include other aspects of the soul that does not involve reason, perhaps, right? I mean, there are irrational parts to our, our world. There, there are things that happen in the world irrationally. There is such a thing as chaos. Um, so it's, it seems like the soul would, would be more complicated than just to be defined by reason. Yeah, I think that point is, is interesting that if reason exists, can everything be predicted? And I think maybe some of the things that I just highlighted here on the screen may help to address that question or, or at least frame that question. And I think first, uh, Socrates is saying that our state of coming to be consists of a mixture of the unlimited and the limited. Uh, so the unlimited is the universe itself. There is no limit to the potential of the universe, which is a good thing for us because we then have access to that unlimited potential. But then our state of coming to be, there is constant limits. Things are constantly beginning and ending. There's physical entropy that we have to deal with. Everything has limits in our state of coming to be. But what he's saying is that those limits are drawn from the unlimited. So there's this mixture of the unlimited and the limits and everything. And our job or the job of reason is to determine what ratio of each is in that limit or, or it is in that mix. And then also to determine the cause, right? Because if you remember what the first part of the dialogue said was that the everything in our state of coming to be is a combination of unlimited plus limited and I put those in brackets in an equation, unlimited plus limited in brackets, multiplied by cause equals state of coming to be, uh, which is kind of the common experience of all of us. So I think maybe those things help to really open up the universe and its potential for us. And then I think also in here um, that I highlighted this last part that Socrates said that the universe orders and coordinates the years, seasons, and months. And I think there that maybe he's not saying that it coordinates us it doesn't coordinate humans it coordinates the kind of stage in which we act um, and make sure that everything is balanced so i think within that context we can exercise reason and will but i think let's we need to explore that definitely more again i think that goes back to the question of whether the universe itself has a soul if the universe has a soul then that soul is shared with us and then that would seem to give us great power in our soul as well, I think, wouldn't it? Interesting thoughts there that you raise. We'll go to uh, Steve and then to Eva. Uh, go ahead and let Eva go since uh, I already okay. talked. Uh, in my, my uh, you sort of clarified my point anyway, so okay. go on to her, please. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I enjoy hearing the sarcastic Socrates when he talk, he's talking about the god or the goddess. So if you are sarcastic, like the way he talks about the gods, and then he mentions like the small, tiny god at the back of his ear, I think he, he has a trust on a form of a divine but is in a situation where there are a lot of people around him 
who claim to be God, the power. So I think he's making a sarcastic joke and kind of like insulting them in his own intellectual mind, calling them the gods. But there's a small, tiny god who whispers things in his system. So that's kind of like the virtue he is able to hear by himself, I guess. Like about the universe, it's very easy to get lost with a magnificent system that is running. Again, I don't know how, but somehow I hear with Socrates and Plato that, yeah, the universe doesn't have a power, but it has a system. And as humans, we could either destroy that system or just like, you know, go with it, but the universe will stay. Like with the season, there's a system. The seasons go on. But messing up with the ecosystem, the winter still comes in. And we build an airport at a place where there, it, there shouldn't be a building. It, that place should stay as a lake. But we build a human's mind. They think they're so clever. We build an airport or a building. Then the universe has a system. But I don't think the universe is running that system because uh, the universe says, like, the system says, okay, this is the time that the rain comes, so the airport is under the water, it's flooded. So it's like the person has the essence, maybe, but it's about what we do with our systems. I think it's in Socrates' saying of very funny and meaningful dialogue for me, the day he knew he was going to die, and his wife said, like, are you going to let them kill you knowing that they are wrong? And Socrates, again, that's amazing. I don't know how he did it. He goes like, of course they are wrong. What do you think? Do you think I'm dying because they are right? Of course I know that they are wrong. That proves me that he has a higher self, maybe, really watching things around him maybe, or watching from an angle and like the ecosystem or the animals maybe, they, he knows about the system, but about the idea of God, just like him, I, I kind of have a, I wanna stop myself when I wanna say God, because we all have our own idealistic God figure there. I think we all have to deal with that idea of God in our own minds to really understand if there is one or not. Thank you. I think what you said was very helpful in a number of ways in the idea that Socrates might be motivated by a higher self or his own form of the eternal and kind of mocking those external agents who claim to be God. I think that was an interesting viewpoint. And I think also the way you put the universe as not having power over us, but it's a system. I think that's that's really helpful to think of it that way. And so the universe is this system. It's a complete system. There is nothing else. It is a complete system. So in that sense, is there anything to run? No, there's just simply completeness. Like there's, if you're running something, you're, you're changing things, but why would you change things if you are complete? I, I think that was a, a helpful way of putting it, that the universe is that complete system. Thinking 
talking about the pre periodic table is like, you know, it's just there. No one can change it. It's just the system, right. the formulas are there. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So, so all of those elements are there for us and we are here to apply reason to make of it what we will, I guess. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Um, JK. Yeah. You said the universe is there and it's a complete system, but each of us has a interpretation of that so-called complete or incomplete system, whatever it is, you know, because it could be a, um, an in incomplete system, right? That is striving for completion, just like we're striving for completion, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe it is, it's just a process that we're going, you know, we're in this um, flux of time and we're just riding along with it. And we're trying to interpret, understand what that uh, system is. And it seems like a lot of people have different interpretations of what that system is. Mm -hmm. and we're trying to understand, you know, come to, a closest understanding to what that system or non-system is. That's a, an interesting viewpoint. And it makes me think maybe that the universe, if it's a complete system, it's complete in its own potential, maybe as a way of thinking of it. And then we are the agents who bring that potential into a state of coming to be with our differences. So each one of us is different. And we make this grand, wonderful story together with the combination of our differences and in the absence of which there would just be static, there would be nothing. So here's the universe, Socrates is saying, has a soul, has a universal soul, but has endowed each one of us as unique individuals with separate souls. But I think the, the implication here is that all souls eventually tie together because we know that the, there's physical limits, but we know that the soul is not physical. And so we know of no limits to the soul. We, we can see the person, we can see the body and say it has a limit. But there's absolutely no scientific way we can see the soul and to say the soul has a limit. And my soul, is my soul limited just to my head? Or it, does it have, it's, it's, it's invisible. I don't know if, if the physical body limits my soul. I, I just don't know. But I think we're all kind of trying to attain some sort of universal truth. And maybe that's, the universal soul. I mean, let me ask a question here. If it were proved tomorrow, say all of the Nobel laureates from the past 10 years came out with a letter and, and a formal proof that the universe had a soul, and they were able to approve it mathematically, with physics, philosophically, every kind of proof, what difference would it make? How do you think we would react or behave or what difference would it make in our lives? Would we just go on doing as we do? I wonder, I'll put that question out there. I, I you know, maybe, maybe Socrates would just say, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be one thing maybe. <laughs> well, how about if, uh, if they, tomorrow they come up with a computer that can uh, think as good as any human being, philosophize as good as any human being, and so it's a consciousness just like us. And maybe it's better than us because it's much faster and much faster quenching numbers and much faster giving us answers to philosophical questions. Would that cause you to um, be willing to sacrifice your own personal consciousness and just, you know, go along with that computerized programming? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question. It's, I mean, how would we know that the the computer was better than we are, because we can see that it's faster, but faster isn't always better. How is a com 
computer's capacity to reason, how do we gauge that? You know, do, do we apply our own reason? I mean, here with our own human reason over thousands of years, we have completely transformed the earth. We, we've built cities, we've created all sorts of wonderful technology. This is what reason has done for us. This is not what machines have created for us. We have created it. We've created the machines that help us to generate these things, but we are the ones who created the machines. We're the ones who program the machines. So if there is a machine that's invented that has reason and a consciousness, we are the inventors. So that must be saying something about us. Yeah. You know, that, yeah, I mean, it, it, but it's a good question. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to so, imagine uh, because we're getting close maybe to that point. Right, right. But these computers are, you know, um, being built by us to beat us at our own game. Yeah. <laughs> our yeah. various games that we, yeah, yeah, that we want to play, that we play. That's a good observation. And, and maybe we should understand where we are in the order of things and whether we are truly these feeble things that are bound to be obsolete and we're going to be replaced by computers, which I'm afraid is kind of a default assumption of many. But uh, I think there's something grander in us. And I think this is what Socrates is saying in this section. We possess a soul and the universe possesses a soul. So we possess that which the universe possesses. And that's, you can't get much better than that. I don't think so. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, again, like what would happen if if we were proven tomorrow that the universe had a soul? What, would we behave any differently? I, it's an interesting question. It's just that the, just the point is that if we identify with ourselves, our consciousness as a calculating machine, a super calculator, and we build a computer that uh, even, you know, does better than us, super calculating, mm -hmm. what's our destiny then to, um, you know, to just give up and Say we, you know, we are we are not nothing but this, um, you know, old-fashioned calculator that's no longer useful, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where Roger Penrose, for example, he's doing a lot of discussions lately in which he's making the point that the the mind is not purely a calculating device. There's more to the mind than just calculation. So maybe this is something that we are now discovering with our technology: is that there is something more to our own minds than we previously thought. Uh, so thanks for that. We'll go to Steve and then to Darren. To your question about the uh, proof of the soul. So there's there's two reasons why that can happen, or there's two explanations. You, you would, as J.K. brought up before, have Gödel's incompleteness theorem. In order to prove anything completely, you have to make an assumption. So you can't, you can never prove completely because there has to be some assumption along the line. And the other thing is with the turning uh, machines, that in order for something to calculate all the possibilities, whatever it is, human or, or non-human or to whatever method, it would have to calculate beyond the end of the universe. So it would be calculate. There's actually some science fiction. I think it's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that computer was calculating past the end to the end of the universe and then it came up with that there's no definite answer so and the other thing as far as when we're talking about what great inventors we are and what reason has done we have to keep aware of the fact that the according to our current knowledge the only reason we're here is because a, a giant meteor or comet hit the earth the, the dinosaurs were not able to survive so our ancestors, which were little uh, small mammals, you know, perhaps like a rat, 
was able to survive uh, long enough until the earth uh, you know, came back to be able to support li uh, life how many millions of years. And, you know, when we're saying that we created all these fabulous tools and machines, you know, we, we have to realize that every tool is a technology. So a hammer is technology. And on the other end, you could have it from the perspective, again, and I think Penrose is self-serving in this too, it's the idea that, that we are special, that, uh, you know, what we have is special or greater, and we could just be considered something that was created by the forces of evolution and that we're just a minor tool on a you know minor planet you know it's not like we want to think of ourselves as insignificant but we we want to use that as a way of not uh, getting grandiose ideas of of how great we are that was it and and yeah you know, interesting perspective certainly the science is leading us to discover that we are not uh, that we're not the center of the universe, you know, as, as uh, for example, was thought in the early Renaissance when they burned people for saying that the uh, Earth orbited the, the sun rather than the other way around. So yeah, I think we're discovering that there's a lot more to the universe than just us. And you made a, an interesting point about having to calculate to the limit of, of probabilities, which go on forever, I guess, in the universe. And yeah, that would be a problem. Uh, and so, yeah, I think if that approach were were taken, then I don't think that there could be a scientific proof that there was a soul to the universe. But maybe there's part of the answer to that in this dialogue, which is that if reason is situated in the middle of everything, we're not calculating probabilities out to their maximums or or to their minimums. We're not calculating to the limits. We're calculating to the middle. And I think that's a, a pretty powerful mathematical and geometric concept that Socrates brings into this dialogue, is that the calculation that we have to do in our minds to find this harmony between the unlimited and the limited is not calculating to the extreme, but calculating to the mean. And that's a pretty powerful idea, I think, that we can maybe explore. So maybe if we found the middle of everything, then there could be a proof that the universe has a soul. I don't know. It's it's a thought that I throw out there. So there's a couple of other readings. I think I'll skip the middle reading that I had, and I'll, I'll go to the idea of memory as preservation of perception. This is from 33C to 34C. And whether there's a universal soul or not, certainly we know our souls have the capacity of memory. And in this section, um, Socrates is drawing the distinction between memory of the soul as it's connected to the body and recollection, which is what the soul does when it's not connected to the body or not experiencing the same things that the body experiences. And I wonder if we could have any volunteers to read this section. Yeah, I'll read Protarchus. Okay, all right, thanks again, JK. Um, so Socrates starts. But now, as for the other kind of pleasure, of which we said that it belongs to the soul itself, it depends entirely on memory. In what way? It seems we first have to determine what kind of a thing memory is. In fact, I'm afraid that we will have to determine the nature of perception even before that of memory, if the whole subject matter is to become at all clear to us in the right way. You must realize that some of the various affections of the body are extinguished within the body before they reach the soul, leaving it unaffected. 
Others penetrate through both body and soul and provoke a kind of upheaval that is peculiar to each, but also common to both. I realize that. Are we fully justified if we claim that the soul remains oblivious of those affections that do not penetrate both, while it is not oblivious to those that penetrate both? Of course we are justified. But you must not so misunderstand me as to suppose that I meant that this obliviousness gave rise to any kind of forgetting. Forgetting is rather the loss of memory, but in the case in question here, no memory has yet arisen. It would be absurd to say that there could be the process of losing something that neither is nor was in existence, wouldn't it? Quite definitely. You have only to make some changes in names then. How so? Instead of saying that the soul is oblivious when it remains unaffected by the disturbances of the body, now change the name of what you so far called obliviousness to that of non-perception. I understand. But the, when the soul and body are jointly affected and moved by one and the same affection, if you call this motion perception, you would say nothing out of the way. And so we know by now what we mean by perception. Certainly. So if someone were to call memory the preservation of perception, he would be speaking correctly as far as I'm concerned. Rightly so. And do we not hold that recollection differs from memory? Perhaps. Does not their difference lie in this? In what? Do we not call it recollection when the soul recalls as much as possible by itself, without the aid of the body, what she had once experienced together with the body? Or how would you put it? I quite agree. But on the other hand, when after the loss of memory of either a perception or again a piece of knowledge, the soul calls up this memory for itself, we also call these events recollection. You are right. The point for the sake of which all of this has been said is the following, that we grasp as fully and clearly as possible the pleasure that the soul experiences without the body, as well as a desire. And through a clarification of these states, the nature of both pleasure and desire will somehow be revealed. So thanks again, JK, for reading that. I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between memory as preservation of perception and recollection as what the soul does without the body. So perception is something that involves the physical, right? So we have the five senses and we have the perceptions that the five senses bring to us. And some of those perceptions involve the soul, but others are kind of automatic perceptions that you know we're not thinking about. You know, when we breathe, we don't think about, you know, I'm going to take a breath now and a breath now. And we don't do that. So we just, we do that imperceptibly. But here he's saying that there are certain things that affect the body and the soul, you know, like a great physical pain, of course, penetrates through the body and, and reaches the soul. Great passions penetrate the body and reach the soul. So there's, there's certain things that the soul and body experience in common. And to me, I, I was thinking about this as almost creating like a little bit of a shockwave. The soul and the body have this connection, which kind of then resonates. And this resonation once that connection of perception is then disconnected, that resonation continues, and the soul is what's the soul is recollecting that resonation of what it once experienced with the body. And there's the interesting part um, a little bit on, uh, I think I have it here on the screen too, where Socrates talks about, or he gives the example of how do we know uh, the, the first time, say you're the, the first human being on the planet. And you're feeling not well, physically not well. How do you know that the reason for you're not feeling well is that you've become dehydrated? How do you know that you need to take water? 
to feel better because nobody has told you. And it's this really interesting example that he brings up here. And he's using that as his proof that there is a recollection that pertains to the soul only and not to the body. The body is restricted to memory of these physical events, but this recollection belongs to the soul only. So Darren, your thoughts? I'm glad we got here because um, this is the most fascinating part of uh, this week's reading for me. So I was uh, looking at the Perseus translation, uh, which is helpful for this dialogue because there's, uh, I feel like it can be quite different from the, um, the Hackett one. So it's helpful to see like how other people have tried to make sense of these words there uh, regarding this sort of originary desire. He says uh, in the Perseus says, so Socrates says this, well, then is there any source from which a man who is empty at first can gain the comprehension whether by perception or by memory, a fullness, a thing that he does not feel at the time and has never felt before. And yet he who desires, desires something, we say. So he was talking about the kinds of memory we have that are attached to our physical body. But here he segues into this little discussion about desires that the soul might have on its own especially for things he doesn't really name what it is but for things that he has never experienced before so it can't possibly understand them through like a memory which he defines as attached to the physical body or by perception but if it's desiring if it has this kind of desire it must be for something okay so this is like this mystery about what it is but of course like so many of these little mysteries that are dropped in these dialogues I feel like the suggestion, once again, is that we have this originary sense, this intimation of, well, here we go again, like the good. <laughs> this idea that like we seem to have a sense for what it is, even though like we never experienced it directly, like through our bodies. I guess it might be talked about like a form or some abstract notion of the good here that we still like search for it. And I think what's powerful, though, is that or maybe what's in the, the element that's comes into the picture here that we weren't discussing before is that here we're talking about a desire for the good right so it's not just like some intellectual thing that we're interested in that might like appear in some kind of logical problem we might <laughs> be doing on the sheet of paper and then we realize oh you know maybe we need this idea of a good in order to like fill in the gaps but no here it's actually a human being who experiences this He's, he calls it an emptiness as a kind of desire. And then, if I may, I just want to talk about the short bit about the next, the, the section that immediately follows this, because I find it so interesting. So after he leaves us with this mystery of this, like he talks about this originary desire, the one we have for the first time. And then he segues into this um, discussion. Of, so this is at 35E. He says, there is yet a further point we have to consider that is connected with the same conditions for our discussion seems to me to indicate that there is a form of life that consists of these conditions. He uses this language of a form of life at various points in this dialogue. And here it comes up again. So he describes this kind of life where he's talking about that desire again that we have. But he says that we are simultaneously in pain because we are empty. But we also have this kind of desire, which he calls like a kind of an, a hope or anticipatory pleasure for this thing that we've never experienced before. So like when I read this, when he was describing this so-called form of life, I think uh, James mentioned, you know, this dialogue earlier already, and I mentioned it last week, which is um, 
the description of a soul emotion in the Phaedrus, which I feel like he's describing here again without making that connection per se. But in the Phaedrus, when someone starts to fall in love and the suggestion there is that they start to do live a kind of philosophical life, although that might look different for you know different people who fall in love with different things, there is simultaneously a kind of pain it's clearly described there, the picture that's being depicted there was that in the Phaedrus is that there's a kind of pain, but also a kind of desire, a strong desire for the truth or for the good. So I don't know. I feel like, again, like we have to make these connections ourselves and it's everything in these Plato's dialogues are sketchy, right? But here, <laughs> I don't know, like this originary desire of which we never, of a thing we never experienced before. And he ties it, this idea in with a form of life. And then he describes his form of life as being this strange mixture of pleasure and pain. And so I was like, okay, like we're coming back to the same idea of the good again and how the, how the human being is you know, drawn up and connected with it. Like I, I see a lot of echoes of previous dialogues in this dialogue. And this is known, people suspect this might be one of the last or maybe the very last play of dialogue before the laws, which is the one that everyone knows is the last. So this might be the one before it. So like this will be another kind of echo of, maybe ideas that Plato are collecting in this dialogue and he's just sort of putting it together in, into a kind of picture but I definitely see the echoes here you raise a form of life I hadn't really thought about that I'm just reading a little bit further down at 36a they're talking about desire at that point and so desire is for something that we don't have so it's kind of like, as Socrates says, at one point, an opposite state, we desire the opposite state. And so maybe this other form of life is a form that's in our mind. And it's a form based on our desires, which are the opposites of what we have. And that actually ties in well to a reading that we might have time to do from 39C to 40D, in which Socrates talks about the soul in time. You know, the soul is not just gauging or measuring things as they are in the present. It's measuring things and probabilities as they're going to evolve in the future. And there's a great line at the end of that particular reading. I'll just preempt it right now by, by reading it. Socrates says, in the sense that whoever has any pleasure at all, however ill-founded it may be, really does have pleasure, even if sometimes it is not about anything that either is the case or ever was the case or often or perhaps most of the time refers to anything that ever will be the case. So we have these pleasures of things that may never exist. Um, so it's kind of this other, other world where we're not, the soul isn't attached to the body and isn't limited to the body for its pleasures, for its source of pleasure. The soul gets its source of pleasure elsewhere, I think. So maybe that's a, a thought to keep in mind there. Can I just make a quick follow-up yeah. about the, um this idea of a form of life. I think it's in interesting that he's using this language to describe this sort of philosophical life, or at least that's this is what it seems to me that he's describing, um, which is imbued with, you know, a kind of love, you know, philosophy being the love of wisdom, the emphasis on the love part. And I think it's interesting because I think it's more familiar. I mean, even in a lot of Socratic dialogues um, to um, use this language to describe a specific cultural way of life in various Plato dialogues. We see him even in the Cratylus, which we just read, we see him just talking about like different peoples and different cultures and how they do things differently there. And they have different gods and different beliefs, different words for things. I feel like it's interesting that he's using this language to describe a way of existence in the world, a form of life 
which is not just sort of contingent or relative to a culture or a history or a place, but I think it's it's a form of life that, I mean, I think the suggestion is that it's it's a metaphysical form of life. It's like available to everyone, you know, insofar as they're human beings and they find something to fall in love with. It's like a universal form of life. So it's not like uh, one that's culturally or historically contingent to a place or time and, you know, a certain group of people. I, I, know, I think there's a provocative idea that, you know, this uh, kind of availability, this uh, way of life for everyone. And it's one that's like moved, you know, it's not dispassionate. It's one that's like moved by a desire. That's, I think the idea here is that it's love because the description is very similar to the one in the Phaedrus. So yeah, that's all I want to mention that, you know, this is a form of life that's not a cultural form, but, you know, a metaphysical or philosophical one that's available to, it's universal. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, and it has feelings involved. Um, so I think it's a nice picture. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Yeah. And, and certainly when you say picture, reminds me of that section in today's reading where they're talking about the soul painting a picture in the mind of a particular pleasure. Um, that picture is painted at one particular point in time, but then the soul needs to then be able to extend that picture out with motion over time to see how it's going to play out. And maybe maybe that uh, original sense that you talked about and that meta metaphysical state of being, maybe that's where the individual soul is trying to connect with the universal or trying to trying to clarify its connection with the universal soul. I think he's saying that it is connected to the universal soul, but it can't necessarily see it, but it is connected. So maybe that's, maybe that's part of this uh, interesting idea. So thanks. We'll go to Steve. Try and be brief because it's the same sort of theme I've used before in this, but the couple of things came up. Uh, Jason first talked about thirst and how did the first person know that there was thirst? And is it something that's a memory? And uh, Darren, I believe, brought up about the good and the same sort of thing. Is it a remembrance and uh, the passage that you read about the uh, pleasure and that possibility of it being, you know, metaphysical? Um, you know, all these there, you know, there's another explanation to this that might be simpler and more proven out. And that's like these are all biological adaptions. Thirst is something that's that's an emergent property. First single cells developed and they developed in water. So from, from that, you know, what the stages were from where it was emerged into uh, smaller subcell structures and then multicellular. But most of the arguments are from a, a human perspective from where, where we're evolved at today. And what is, what is good is a, a positive variance Pleasure is a positive variance. So that's something that we see in all animals and all cells. A cell will move towards food. It'll move away from the cold or, you know, away from the heat. It's, a, you know, if you want to say memory is DNA, that might be a cleaner way of saying it if you need that metaphor. And also the idea of love is most certainly a a modern uh, romantic idea that's only been developed within the last three, 4,000 years, maybe. You know, if you go back 6,000 years ago, we're not even talking about a half a million years of when, you know, humans were separate species. The whole idea of this was didn't exist. So this is the, the whole 
uh, idea of uh, love, you know, seems pretty evident that it's a uh, evolved biological or probably a cultural adaptation that provides us with a biological advantage so that if you have the love of a grandparents, they can take care of a, a child while the parents are out working. If that prospers, then that's, that provides for a biological uh, adaption. So I was a little longer than I wanted to be, but that was my point. Thank you. And it's worth considering those options. I think certainly um, modern science has raised a lot of those questions, you know, but maybe to take love as an example, uh, yes, it can lead to benefits. And so there's maybe some sort of natural tendency, maybe a physical tendency towards it, if if that's a part of the biological adaptation that you were talking about. But then it can also lead to great pain. And, you know, so why do... Uh, why do we engage in it if it results in pain sometimes? And it does that, uh, you know, people die for love, for example, you know, it, it actually can lead to death. Uh, so I don't know if it's something that's um, entirely physical. There may be other explanations for it, but but certainly it's worth considering. It's, uh, yeah, I think I think these questions are being raised by modern science now and, and they need to be addressed. Somehow there needs to be a reconciliation of these things and then maybe tie back to the idea of memory as we're talking about here and recollection. So, you know, again, the, the sense that memory is what the soul experiences with the body together. There are certain things happening to both at the same time, but then after that happens, we know that the soul has its own recollection of things that happen. You know, maybe we remember something that happened when we loved in the past and then we, shape that experience again in the future. I mean, that's that's the power of recollection, I think, is what he's saying here. So, yeah, maybe there's something about memory and recollection that modern science needs to get a grasp on. I don't know. Real so quick reply. Yeah. Um, just to, um, for something to be a biological or cultural advantage, it doesn't mean that you, it just needs to be a little bit better. You know, it doesn't mean that you're, you're never going to be hurt by love, but if you reproduce at a higher rate, then if you don't have it, that means it's a biological advantage. So it could be 50.0001, and that's that's going to confer an advantage. And the, you know, the idea that there is a soul and that there's memory is I, I, I'm sorry, but I didn't get your point to it. I just don't see how that how that leads into it. But thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. Let's go to Jerry and then to Darren. So um I think we all acknowledge the phenomenon of memory. We all acknowledge that phenomenon and Socrates' explanation of it, you know, the recollection, you know, of past experience, like what's it like to be thirsty and what does it take to satiate, to satiate thirst is not an unreasonable explanation or description. The question is, okay, well, what's the point of all this? Um, we got here because he was saying in the previous page that We've got deprivation or pain, and we've got pleasure or satiation. Can't say that word. What is? Is there some middle ground between these two that's maybe better? And he's trying to get to that middle ground. And so then, what does all this have to do with that middle place? I, I guess on the one hand, he's trying to distinguish between the body and the mind. Okay, great. He's distinguished between the body and the mind. But again, what does that have to do with that middle place? Is he? 
is he trying to suggest that somehow if the if the the mind disconnects from the body in some sort of way that we've reached this middle place where we feel neither pain nor pleasure is that where he's going and if he is going there then then once i achieve this ascetic state you know of disconnection from my body what do i need memory for because this description of memory is here is that it's somehow in service to the body you know my body is suffering and i use memory to you know satiate whatever the body me body needs so here memory is in service to the body in this example he's giving with thirst so then once i achieve this this state of separation do i need memory anymore i mean there's something about the eternal mind that has a kind of a disconnected feel to it um, it's it's not eternal in the sense of constantly moving infinitely towards some space it's eternal in the sense that it's just Yeah, still an unchanging, yeah. maybe. Yeah, um, I, I think the, the, you know, the memory is what the soul experiences with the body, but it never, the soul never disconnects from the body. It's just that the memory occurs at one particular point in time, and I think the the, the theme here is about time, and so later in time, the soul has the ability to recall what happened at an earlier point in time when it was joined with the body so maybe there's a point in time where the the soul and the body experience thirst together and so later on even if the body is not experiencing thirst the soul recalls that thirst happens when the body is empty and so the soul will take action to prevent that from happening again and that's done through recollection i think that's that's the point and i think this middle ground you know again the the uh, i think that's that towards 39a that I was mentioning before, I think Socrates says, is it possible to be neither in pleasure nor in pain? Like to be exactly right in the middle of, of the two. And that, that's where he's making the point about the flux. He, he says, those who hold that everything is in flux will say that there is logically no middle point because the middle point would have to also be in flux. And therefore it's not a middle, it's just another point in flux. And so he's saying that there is this middle point, and I think very strongly he's suggesting that the middle point is reason. It's kind of like the universal middle point is reason, and that reason gives rise to all limits, and that middle point itself is unlimited. And I think that's why he's saying that kind of you have to bring this unlimit up through the middle, and then you have to then gauge the the limits that are in this realm of becoming that we inhabit. So. To me, that's that's what he's saying, and it's just it's about time. Memory happens at one particular point in time; recollection happens later, not associated to that particular event when the soul was connected to the body. Well, th and thank you for raising that. I think that was a good point to to clarify, and we can certainly explore that more. Although we are running out of time again, it's uh, we have about fifteen minutes left, so uh, but still lots of great things to discuss. So, Darren, uh, your your thoughts. Okay, so I'll just try to make a, a quick response to um, uh, what Steve said about uh, love and how it's like a, could be a biological thing or, you know, love itself. Because I was suggesting that, you know, Plato might be suggesting talking about a form of life that's uh, universal, available to everyone, that's which 
looks like philosophy and is imbued with this emotion that's love. And then, of course, Steve made this good point that um, romantic love, it's maybe love itself is a culturally contingent idea. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, that could very well be the case. Like, I have to look into this more. But I think for Plato, though, at least is my understanding of what he's talking about. I, I don't think we should understand like his discussion of love is just like romantic love as we understand it. In the Phaedrus, it seems like people can and do fall in love with each other. And that sort of begins their pathway towards goodness, truth, and beauty, but it, they could also form, like, I'm pretty sure he discussed, he just mentions there that it, you know, people could fall in love with various things like activities, certain forms of activities. I don't know, maybe it's a craft or, you know, maybe it's an art or something like people could start that journey by falling in love or loving those kinds of activities too. And that's also a journey into a philosophical life where we're heading towards, you know, the, the forms he talks about in the Phaedrus, uh, goodness, truth, and beauty. So like when I, when I, when I mentioned love, like I don't, I don't necessarily mean it in the, like a lovey dovey <laughs> romantic love sense. I, I mean it like in what he describes in the Phaedrus, which I think can encompass the kind of romantic love, but it's more expansive. He's describing a kind of experience of a kind of emotion we experience, like it's whole, um, with our whole being that's towards the, those forms of um, goodness and truth. And I think this ties in with the discussion. Um, I think some people, I think maybe Steve was uh, confused about how it was related to memory or something, or at least like there was some discussion between you and Steve about this. And uh, I think, I mean, I think memory ties in here directly because it's precisely this originary desire that we have for something, you know, we've never actually apprehended physically, <laughs> but somehow like our soul wants it, you know, this like thing that's like capital T truth. I mean, maybe we don't believe in that, but I think this is the picture that Socrates is painting or goodness but it does seem like right in our in our, even in our world today in our place in the world like we do seem to want more things like truth and justice we seem to yearn for that kind of thing so i don't know maybe there's something there and so the picture plato paints is like a love that is is connected with memory does have this connection with like truth <laughs> and uh, and reason i guess yeah it's like a sort of very encompassing picture which i think might make the phrase that he uses a form of life you know, that may be a good choice of words to describe this, because when you put all these elements together, it does sort of look like an all-encompassing form of life that is universally available that someone could enter into. Uh, I'll make this last point, which is that, so when we're talking about measurement and you're talking about the middle, James, like to me, what I always have in mind is that Plato in the, I think in the Sophist or in Statesman and here earlier in the last week's reading, like he, he suggested there's two different kinds of measurement. There's a relative kind. And then there's kind that's like, you call it the middle. And I think he does, maybe he does talk about as a middle, maybe in a statesman, but uh, the turn of phrase that I like is that he also uses the term an ideal standard because I don't know, like the middle still sounds like it's a kind of the relative kind of measurement. He wants to distinguish from a kind of measurement that's based on an ideal. And I think this is actually provocative to think of in relation to this other turn of phrase he uses for form of life because when you hear that term it's often understood culturally and i think even in a lot of plato's dialogues as i said like you see this sort of cultural relativism that he discusses so understood culturally a form of life would just consist of a relative measurement you know it's what different people and different groups of people have come to prefer in different places and maybe they're adapted for different environments and so on and so forth and maybe there's a sense of love itself like that steve was talking about that's relative in this way but then i think plato is pointing towards a form of life that's based on an ideal standard that's relative to goodness and truth that we also have access to, but it's not based on a relative kind of measurement, but we have to figure out what the, what this kind of ideal measurement is. 
that will point us towards a more universal available form of life. That's something we would want because it's tied to desire and goodness and truth as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, sorry, I'm trying to link a lot yeah. of thoughts together. Yeah. It, that doesn't oh, come out coherently. <laughs> sorry. I, I think I think linking thoughts is great, and it leads me again to the middle because that's where I think everything links is in the middle, and maybe that's where the ideal is is in in the middle. If that's the place where that has no limit, if that's the unlimited, then that's where maybe the ideal would be. And then we have to then shape this world of becoming or realm of becoming around us around that ideal in the middle, but that requires number and calculation. So that's an interesting idea there. And then actually what you said, I think about love was helpful because it's not just love of one individual for another, but it's also love of things. And in fact, what we're doing here right now is love of wisdom, philosophy, love of wisdom. And that's not always easy and so it's it's something that takes and can actually well as we found with socrates can actually lead to death um so socrates died for philosophy and so it's not always the easy choice yeah it's something that you know maybe it's because we're just wired to find that middle point which is unbound by anything not bound by those limits of beginning and end and maybe just on that theme, I have this last reading here. I won't do the whole thing because we don't have time, but this is an important thing in this dialogue uh, because it relates to time. And this is, I selected this part from 39C to 40D, uh, and they're talking about past, present, and future, which is something that the soul is very concerned about. Well, as far as we know, the body's only concerned about the present. So that the soul and the body meet in the present, the senses provide data to the soul of what's happening in the present. And then the soul has to make meaning of that in past and future. So this is where Socrates talks about, we paint a picture in our minds. I kind of almost think of a, a painted static image in my mind of a particular thing. So I have a particular pleasure in mind, um, say it's a fantastic trip to a sunny destination and I'm relaxing on a beach. That's my painted picture of pleasure. And then my soul then has to put that into motion and play it out. Well, how do I get to that beach? You know, it's going to take me, I have to earn money to pay the cost of getting to that beach. I have to take the time off to get to that beach. All of these things. So it's this process of understanding how these painted pictures, these images that we get, static Im images then play out over time from uh, past to present to future. And so in this part towards the end of that section, Socrates asks of Protarchus, he says, and are all those writings and pictures which come to be in us, as we said earlier, concerned only with the past and present, but not with the future? Protarchus says, decidedly with the future. Socrates says, if you say decidedly, is it because all of them are really hopes for future times, and we are all forever brimful of hopes throughout our lifetime? Protarchus says, quite definitely. Well then, says Socrates, in addition to what has been said now, also answer this question, is not a man who is just, pious, and good in all respects also loved by the gods? Protarchus says, how could he fail to be? Socrates says, but what about someone who is unjust and in all respects evil? Isn't he that man's opposite? Protarchus says, of course. And is not everyone, as we just said, always full of many hopes? Well, certainly, says Protarchus. There are then assertions in each of us that we call hopes, Socrates asks. Protarchus answers, yes. And Socrates responds, but there are also those painted images, and someone often envisages himself in the possession of an enormous amount of gold and a lot of pleasures as a consequence. And in addition, he also sees in this inner picture himself that he is beside himself with delight. 
Now, do we want to say that in the case of good people, these pictures are usually true because they are dear to the gods? Well, quite the opposite usually holds in the case of the wicked ones, or is this not what we ought to say? Pitarchus says, this is just what we ought to say. Socrates responds, and wicked people nevertheless have pleasures painted in their minds, even though they are somehow false? Right, says Pitarchus. Socrates says, so wicked people as a rule enjoy false pleasures, but the good among mankind true ones. Well, necessarily so. From what has now been said, it follows that there are false pleasures in human souls and are quite ridiculous imitations of the true ones, and also such pains. There certainly are, says Protarchus. Now, it was agreed that whoever judges anything at all is always really judging, even if it is not about anything existing in the present, past, or future. And these were, I think, the conditions that produce a false judgment and judging falsely, weren't they? Yes, says Protarchus. Socrates says, but should we also not grant to pleasures and pains a condition that is analogous in these ways? What ways, says Protarchus? Socrates says, in the sense that whoever has any pleasure at all, however ill-founded it may be, really does have pleasure, even if sometimes it is not about anything that either is the case or ever was the case, or often, or perhaps most of the time, refers to anything that will ever be the case. Um, so I wanted to raise that kind of at the end of our discussion today, just to set the stage for the next and last part of, of the dialogue that we'll read in two weeks from 45D to the end. But here is this idea of we have hopes, the, the soul has hopes for time in it. And these hopes, I think, you know, to go back to that discussion, that memory would, re would require recollection of things that the soul and the body experience together, which would be memory, and then what the soul can recall without the body at that particular moment to shape its journey through time. So this journey through time the soul has to deal with all of the past, present, and future. And that requires memory of what occurred with the body, but also recollection uh, of what the soul recalls without the body, because there's always events that are going to happen in the future, which we we can't plan. We haven't, we haven't experienced before. And so without that experience, recollection is required. So I found this was an interesting way of bringing time into the picture and you know, the soul is definitely something that's concerned with time. The soul wants to survive as long as it can, live as long as it can. The soul wants to maintain the body because it's the soul's vehicle. And, you know, the soul's job, I think, is to maintain that recollection as well as it can, because it's going to have to apply past situations in future circumstances uh, in ways that it doesn't necessarily know how it's going to turn out, but it needs to be able to do that calculation and, and measurement process and somehow find the limits of the things that it's dealing with in this realm of limits that we exist in, but then always look for that universal connection, which I think is in the middle. So I don't know if anybody has any last comments on that part, or we pick it up next time at uh, 45D. Well, we'll pick it up next time at 45D in that case. It's been a great discussion today. This is such an interesting section of the, the dialogue. I, I find this middle section is, is really fascinating. It presents so many interesting ideas that tie together. And I think we do have to come back to the question of whether the universe has a soul. I don't think that there was any consensus on it today. Um, so I think maybe we have to see where they're going to go with that concept in the rest of the dialogue. But I would like to come back to that question of the universe having a soul uh, in our next session. So 
I will uh, turn off the recording now, but I invite anybody who wishes to stay online uh, for an unrecorded half-hour discussion in Plato's Cafe of what we've just covered, or philosophy in general, or Plato. So um, I hope everybody can return in two weeks to finish the syllabus. Thank you. <laughs>